does crime pay? It certainly does for the content creators, the authors, newspaper reporters, producers of radio serials, TV dramas, and blockbuster movies. Since the advent of the printing press, content creators have sensationalized and commercialized crime. Why? It's juicy. Characters, the plot, good versus evil, will they get away with it? And depending on their slant, sometimes you hope they do. It's not your fault. It's not a personal attack on your personal values. It's just the way the story creators create the characters and bring them to life. But in the real world, it really is about life. And I'm sure that for many, crime does pay. It's big business. They certainly don't catch everyone. But at what price? Those people committing their crimes, do they spend the remainder of their days looking over their shoulders, are worried about their place in a culture that takes no prisoners? I hope so, as they should pay a price. And the victims, what price do they pay emotionally and financially for being at the wrong end of the crime? Today in Chatter That Matters, you're going to meet Ori Spado. He's going to take you inside the world of organized crime. And he goes back to when the heads of the family were household names. People like Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello. Ori starts his story in New York. When Ori's business fails, he moves to Hollywood, California, but he takes his organized crime connections with him. Hooray for Hollywood, that screwy valley hooey Hollywood. There he establishes new relationships with people like Ronald Reagan, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, John Voight, Milton Berle, and even Academy-nominated producer Agostino Dino De Laurentiis. And there, Ori becomes the Hollywood fixer. The man who can be counted on to take care of problems. He's a real-life Ray Donovan, if you're a fan of that show. What does the Hollywood fixer do? He collects debts, scares away stalkers, causes studio executives to live up to their agreements. And all of this eventually gets him indicted on RICO charges. And Ori Spado is sent to a federal prison. This is his story. And inside it, you'll also see a story of Ori's loving father, someone today who tells youth that crime doesn't pay. Ori, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, my pleasure. How are you today? I'm fantastic. So I want to go back. You were born December 17th, 1944 in Rome, New York. Tell me what it's like Rome, New York in the, in the 1944s. What were you like as a young kid? Well, Rome, New York was actually a pretty good town. Uh, at that time, it was around 44,000 population. I had a great childhood. I grew up close to downtown Rome when there was a downtown there. I had a good childhood. Uh, there was uh, my mom and dad and six siblings. Where were you in the family tree, the six kids? I'm right in the middle. I'm number three. So did they even know you existed? Because I hear the middle child's always wondering why the older ones get all the uh, all the attention and the youngest ones get all the love. You know what? Everybody says that I'm the one that got all the attention. <laughs> That's probably because I was the bad boy. Yeah. Age 18, you joined the Army. Uh, what, what made you sign up? You know, I always wanted to be in a, a Marine. Even in my high school yearbook, it says to be a Marine. And my friends, uh, Lou, Fred, and Vinny, all signed up for the Army. We were in the pool room one night. They said, come on, why don't you go with us? I said, yeah, why not? So Fred had to bring papers back 
because Fred was only 17 years old, his parents had to sign papers given permission for him to go in. So I drove to the recruiter's office with him. I skipped school that day. Uh, and I'm sitting, it was in the recruiter's office, was in the bottom of Hotel Utica. And you, there was a big window you could see outside. I'm sitting there and I'm just laughing. The recruiter looks at me, he says, why don't you go with your friends? I looked at him and I says, you know what? I got to get out of this snow. If you can guarantee me that I do basic training down south and you got to guarantee me that I get computer training. He says, you got it. Sign here. I sign. He says, you got to leave tomorrow because we got to get you to Albany to take all the tests and this and that. So I had to go home. First, I had Fred drive me to high school, and I had to quit high school. I emptied my lockers. I'll never forget this day. Dressed me off at home, and I tell my mother, I'm going to tell you, it was February. Snow like you can't believe. My mom yelled so much, I think the snow came in. She was she was unbelievably mad. And then my father got home. My father called my American history teacher, Lincoln Kahn, his name was, and he was an Air Force pilot, an air fighter pilot in World War II. And he explained to my father, it's probably be the best thing for me. And you know what? It was the best thing for me because it taught me a lot of things that a lot of young men are not learning today, such as loyalty, respect, honor, keep your word. Uh, so much that I learned in the Army, and it was probably three of the best years I had in my life. And you got honorably discharged, and then you kind of stumbled around for a while, but you found your groove working for Prudential Insurance. And what my research says is you came up with this idea of the extended warranty. You had a, a, an absolute phenomenal client base of automotive dealers, people working for you. You kind of went from rags to riches. Somebody that hadn't finished high school suddenly was living a pretty good life. Yes, I did extremely well. Insurance is, for me, it was, I'm a worker anyways. I work from the moment I get up in the morning until I go to bed. So hours never bothered me. I always worked on a commission basis, too. In the insurance business, uh, with the Prudential, I believe I make a sale every day, whether it's a $1,000 policy or 100000 that make a difference, a sale a day. And I was making more money than anybody in the office. In the 60s and 70s, I was making over $500 a week when the average wage was maybe $150. And you so you got ahead of yourself though, because what you started from what I understand is you saw this idea of extended warranties that could become bigger and bigger. And was it that you started using premium money to finance your ambitions? I mean, what, how did you go from being one of their most popular and successful agents to them saying? I, uh, I became a general agent for Franklin United Life Insurance Company. And they gave me Oneida and Onondaga counties. And one of the insurances that were sold was Credit Life and A&H 
on the financing of loans. When an automobile dealer sold a car, they financed it, and then they tell you, you get the insurance, if you die, it's paid off, you get sick, we'll make the payment. Only, you know, $2 a month, you know. And I took that program and I developed a system where I, I ended up with polyglyco, uh, no need to shine your car three for three years, uh, paint sealants, warranties, radios, you name it, whatever we could sell. And I would teach an automobile dealer how to sell a car at cost and still make a few grand. And I had a school in Rome, New York, where I brought in, I trained finance managers, we called them then. Uh, I am the guy that pioneered all this in the automobile industry. And I got to be honest with you, I go into a car dealership to buy a car. I hate it. <laughs> you know? why, did, why did it get all taken away from you then? Because you were obviously generating a lot of cash flow. You're innovating, pioneering. I had guys working for me. One guy named Jim Generale out of Syracuse, New York. And he was a good salesman. The most he ever made was 30000 a year. With me, he was making a hundred grand a year. And you've got to remember, I'm talking late sixties, early seventies. Okay. You're making a hundred grand a year plus a brand new Lincoln I gave him. And Jim became a friend of mine and sort of a bodyguard. I mean, I brought him to Vegas, I introduced him. I mean, I had a lot of call in Vegas back then. If I said give you a five thousand line of credit, you had a you had a line of credit. And uh, I came up with the idea of how to go national. And I needed $12 million. I put a business plan together. And then my friend Frank Russo said, let's go to Boston. Ralph is filming the movie, The Brinks Job. And he said, you got to tell Ralph about this program. So we went and we, it was great. I met Maz Jaffe, one of the guys who actually performed the, the Brinks job. I uh, met Peter Falk, John Cassavetes, uh, everybody. It was hilarious. It was a good time. Ralph loved it and said, and, and he called Dino. He said Dino wanted to meet me. Frank and I drove, uh, flew out to Los Angeles stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel, had a meeting with Dina Dillon-Rentis, and then he wanted to see how it worked in an automobile dealership. We went to a dealer in downtown LA. They're probably still there too, that dealership. <laughs> but uh, I showed him how it worked and he was gonna raise the 12 million. And I, you gotta remember, I had a condo in Florida, I'm flying all around the country. And I used to go into Vegas once a month at least, fly in. And uh, Jim Generale, the only people I had a deal with the insurance company, it's not that I was stealing the money. They allowed me to use the float of the premiums to grow my business because I was their golden boy. I was bringing them millions of dollars a year from the state of New York. And now... I who knows how big it would have gotten. 
generally found out through my accountant the deal I had when they were all drunk one night. He called the insurance company and tried to blackmail them and said, if you don't give me the agency, I'll report the insurance company in the state of New York. Well, the insurance company also had another agent that was doing a big business in banks. I only dealt with automobile dealers. He dealt with banks. They cannot afford to lose their license. That's a big thing. And I can remember I flew back to my condo in Florida and I got a phone call from my accountant. Or my bookkeeper actually he said, Dick Leamy called. He said, he's got to come here and close this up. But he wants to talk to you first. He's at a hotel in LaGuardia. And I called Dick. I said, Dick, what the hell's going on? He told me the story. He says, can you get the money? I says, maybe. There was a recession going on. Things were tough. Uh, so I had to try to get the money to even it out. And I got on plane right away. Eastern Airlines was the airline that flew back, met with my banker at 4 a.m. in the morning, met with my banker and my lawyer, Frank Russo. And the banker says, Ori, you know, you're above the limits of what we loan out. It was a small bank, the Bank of Utica. He said, we couldn't, couldn't loan you the money right now. I said, all right, I had to get us somewhere else. I said, Frank, what's the worst that could happen to me. He said, you can go to prison. I said, you're going to, Frank was an older guy. He said, I recommend you get Louis Brindisi in Utica. And the next day we met with Louis. My bank, the bank of Utica put up to 25 grand to retain Louis. And in the meantime, we were, I had another buyer for the insurance company came this close to sell. If I would have sold it, I still would have had all my other businesses. And we set a meeting up with the insurance company and their lawyer to fly in, then give them, we would allow them to look at my books. And uh, when they flew in, I was all set, this is gonna be a great deal. I was still gonna come out with some money too, you know? And I was okay. I was really good in those days. And I get to Utica. I went to pick up my airline tickets to my travel agent. And Dottie says, Ori, Lou Brindisi called here. Said to call him. No need to go to the meeting. I called Lou. I said, what the hell do you mean no meeting? He said, I told him to go f*** himself. He said, why the hell did you do that? I'm coming to your office. I went to his office. I said, I got my books over your office because they could see them. Yeah, screw them. And uh, they, and then I saw them at their hotel. I went to the hotel to try to find them. I did find them. And I said, Dick, and there was Dick, Bob Bushby, a few of them from the insurance company. And uh, they had their insurance company from Michigan. And uh, I said, we got to talk. And uh, the lawyer says, Ori, we can't talk to you without our legal representation. I said, what do you mean? You're the lawyer. He said, no, our New York representation. And I looked at him. I said, go yourself. 
And four and a half years later, I got indicted for mail fraud. I was living in San Francisco at the time. Mail fraud, couldn't believe it. And, uh, but that became my first indictment. Uh, Jim generally did try to call me up and try to get me talk about some Meyer Lansky and Sonny Franchese. Hmm. But I knew something was up. I could tell. And I said, I don't know who you're talking about. And I said, perhaps I read those names in a paper. You know, while I was with you and you were Meyer and you used to walk with them. I said, I got no idea what you're talking about. And that tape was going to be used as discovery, but it didn't so, work for him. So you, so you leave the insurance business. Did you end up with anything when you left and moved to San Francisco and then then to Hollywood? I ended up with nothing. Black Bull. It was a terrible situation from being so high in the world. I mean, people nicknamed me Howard Hughes. It was a big blow. I lost everything. I was broke. And I had to hustle. I'm a hustler. And, you know, I was lucky I only got five years probation on it. All right. Because I almost was going to turn down the plea deal they gave me and go to trial. And in federal court, you only got a 15% chance of winning. So I took the plea deal of five years probation with the permission that I could do it out here in California. And uh, and I was supposed to pay the insurance companies some money back every week. I didn't pay them a nickel. Four and a half years later, I had a business here on Wilshire Boulevard, American Check Guarantee. And my probation officer calls me. No, I had one more month to do. One more month, my probation would have been over. And he called me, he says, I got to see you right away. I drove downtown, I said, what's up? Because the guy never bothered me. He says, Waterman wants to violate you and put you in prison. I said, well, how long can I do? He said, five years. I said, after I've been on probation, I said, for, for four and a half, uh, all this time, almost five years? Yeah. He says, can you get this fixed? I thought about it. Go back to my office. I picked up the telephone. The insurance company had lunch. Since, um, they moved to Orlando, Florida. That's where the home office is now. And I asked for the president of the company, Dick Sikora. And the secretary said, who's calling? I said, just tell him it's Ori. We need to talk. Ori? Yeah, Dick, how are you, my friend? I said, I got good news for you, and I got bad news for you. I said, let me give you the good news. I said, my friends back in New York will loan me the money to pay you off. My friends also said that they can get my license back from the state of New York. But it's all with the contingency that I go back and I get another insurance company. And Dick, what's going to happen? If I'm back in business, all those automobile dealers you have will no longer be with you. I said, that's the good news. 
I said, the bad news is I don't have the money today to pay you. And I don't have a desire to go back and spend winters in New York. Now, here's what I'm prepared to do. I'm prepared to give you $1,000 today, I said, and a blue payment for the balance a year from now. And he says, or you will be getting a call. I hung up, my secretary comes in, a lawyer wants to talk to you. The company lawyer got on and said, Lori, how far are you from Century City? It was right down the block from my office. Go to this lawyer's office. He's got the papers ready. Give him the $1,000. I said, okay. I went top floor, big building in Century City. And uh, he had the papers ready. I signed him and gave him the $1,000. The, the papers I got showed that I paid them off. That was, they had to show up that I had to have that. I went down to my probation officer, I gave him the paper. He said, how the hell did you do, do this? I said, don't ask, I said. <laughs> and I mean, I'll tell you, I did all that in a matter of, it took more time for me to drive downtown and back than it took me to get that completed. And, and I gotta be honest, I never paid him that other money. He only got that thousand. Go after me. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. So, Ori, tell me how you became that Hollywood boss. What, what, I know that in your past, your grandfather and his brother were involved with the, uh, the organized crime in, in Italy, but your dad wasn't here. So how did you kind of go from uh, doing this and that to becoming a real, to becoming the Ray Donovan? In Hollywood. You see, would you believe it was genetics? <laughs> uh, actually, you know, you heard me mention Ralph Serpy and Dean and De Laurentiis. Dean and De Laurentiis, Carlo Ponte, they had the they had the big studios in Italy. When they called down, they came to this country. And when you know Dino Dino was a master of raising money. He did King Kong, he did countless of films, producer, director, he was great. I mean, he could raise money on anything. And uh, his office was right over here on Cannon Drive at the time. And, you know, they called me up, Ori, we got this little problem over here, this director on the set and the actor, and they're quarreling, can you help us out? That's how it began. I go on the set, Talk to the director, he tell me what happened because that happens often a lot of times. The actors think they know more than the director. And I sit down with the, the actor and we resolve it. And it just spirals from there. And agents would call me and lawyers would call me, entertainment lawyers, all sorts of people, the studios. And uh, it was just a second nature thing because I do have 
an ability to sit down with people and explain to them why they should do the right thing. It's their choice. So when you sit down with these people and it sounds like you have a friendly chat, but I would imagine that they sense that behind those words, there could be other ways to persuade people to, to do one thing or the other. All my life is the way people perceive me, the way I talk, my voice. I'm good at putting words together quickly and phrase them properly. And people, it was the perception of who I was. I mean, I looked like a gangster and I'm Italian. So, I mean, it didn't, they, they love gangsters out here. You worked for a lot of the crime family. So it wasn't just simply uh, uh, a little bit of a spat between a director and an actor. They started calling upon you to fix things as well, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I became known as the guy in Hollywood. You know, people would call me from back east and uh, different problems, didn't get paid enough on this project and so forth. And I handled the problems. And how often did that go from being uh, your ability to put words together to, to having to use force? I never had to take force, but they knew from the tone of my voice if I left there, the next people they see will not be me. So you start building, uh, I'm reading in some of the, uh, your past stories and blogs, uh, being in a restaurant and uh, at a bar and having a, having a smoke with Frank Sinatra or Ronald Reagan coming in with Nancy and saying hello. How did you build that Rolodex? How did you start getting known by so many people when... In many cases, people might say, you're someone I should be staying away from versus becoming friends with. Well, I first met Frank down in Palm Springs. Frank was a gambler, and he lost a half a million dollars one weekend. Couldn't ask his wife for the money. Uh, but he was good for it. He, but he couldn't tell his wife I lost a half a million dollars. Uh, he ended up, Dean Martin gave him a half a million. Uh, he paid it. We met then. Uh, and then he also owned Mateo's Restaurant. It was owned by his friend, Maddie. They grew up in Hoboken together. Frank put all the money up for the restaurant years before. And he would come in on Sunday evenings. And Ronald Reagan was there on Sunday evenings. And you name it, whoever was anybody in Hollywood was there on a Sunday evening. And I always had the same table. I sat on the side of the bar so I could smoke. And they all come in. They say hello to me. And the Frank sit at his table. He come out. Hey, buddy. All right. And I go to the bar. And he and I smoke and have a chat. Ronald Reagan walked in. Hey, how you doing today? He put his hand on my shoulder. How you doing, young man? That was when people used to call me young man. <laughs> What's Frank Sinatra like? What was he like when you was, when talking about the, the newsreels and the public life? You're sitting in a bar having a smoke with Frank Sinatra. How would you describe him? A uh, real gentleman and a real man. Yeah, he was a stand-up guy, no question about it. They personify him as sort of the, the leader of this rat pack. Was it, was it truly a, this band of brothers that were so close? Yeah, and they were very close. Uh, 
get a law first. Red Buttons, and forget Dean. Sammy Davis. Rich Kelton. So what made you get the, draw the attention of local law enforcement and the FBI? I mean, another story I read is they loved following you around because you always went to great restaurants and they got to eat at those restaurants and expensive. So they kind of lived your life in your shadows, shadowing you. What was that? Why, why, were you so, why were they so interested in you? What happened really, I actually began, the first thing people were investigating me was uh, everybody knows it as the Golden Squad, the movie Sean Penn did, uh, or the Gangster Squad, and it really existed. It was formed by Chief Parker many years ago to rid Los Angeles of Italians. And they were very serious people. The first time I ever encountered one was my girl that fell and broke her arm at the swimming pool, and I had to rush her to the emergency room. So I'm in the hospital at this emergency room waiting to get in for them to see her, you know? And a detective walks in and says, Suspector, I got to talk to you. I said, can't you see I'm doing something here? I got to get her in and get her arm fixed. And uh, he said, this take a minute. And I, I wasn't in Los Angeles for too long at that time. I walked out, I said, yeah, what's your problem? He says, Fatal, I'm telling you right now, we know you're with Sonny Frank Chase, and we're telling you now, do not practice your trade in Los Angeles. And I looked at him, and he turned around and walked out. He said, you got the message? I go, yeah. I said, but what's my trade? And uh, that was the first encounter. And I basically was always out by myself. Always a loner. I didn't I never went out with a lot of guys. And uh, well, Jimmy Cachi, who was the underboss of Los Angeles and the boss of Palm Springs, he was very. He, he and I were like brothers, and we did a lot together. We made a lot of money. Uh, Jim gave it to the horses, <laughs> but uh, we were having dinner with my dear friend Jerry Zimmerman, me, Jerry Zimmerman, Jimmy Cassie, sitting at Monty's Steakhouse on the valley uh, when two more detectives walked in. And that's the, now they see me again. And you got to remember, they were, were never bothering me. I was buying a car down in Covina from a car dealer. And I was using my nephew's name to finance the car. And prior to that, there were a lot of cars where people were using other people's credit and names. And they tried to say I had something to do with that. But, you know, uh, that's what they tried to say. Never could prove it. It's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Text me anytime, 71010. Uh, we're talking to a, an incredible character, Ori Spado, who's who. Uh, uh, if you're just turning in, started off his life as a, a soldier, honorably discharged, built up an incredible insurance practice. Uh, it went the wrong way on him. Ends up in Hollywood and becomes known as the fixer. Many people say he's the real Ray Donovan, and he's also someone that was called the, the Hollywood boss.
chatting with Ori Spado, the uh, Hollywood boss, the, the real Ray Donovan, uh, and a best-selling author. 2008, you're arrested in Beverly Hills and indicted on a RICO charge. What's a RICO charge? RICO is Racketeering Influence Corruption Organization. It's a tool. It was actually signed into law by Richard Nixon and for the idea of getting rid of drugs in the country. Obviously, we know it didn't work there. But later on, Rudy Giuliani found it. He started using it. It's a, it's a, uh, it's where that the, they could charge the bosses for crimes that other people under them had done. And uh, it's a bad law. I feel it's illegal, unconstitutional, but it is the law. And, you know, it's very difficult to beat. You're not going to beat it. Uh, I got dear friends who were on my indictment. They beat every, every murder charge they had, they beat it. Got found not guilty by a jury. But on the recall, the jurors don't know. So you can get up to 20 years on each recall. And one friend had two. The judge gave him 17. My other friend, who was a younger guy, he told another informant, he said, I could do 30 standing on my head. And the judge heard the tape. And he said, try 50. Wow. Uh, but that's, you know, he had five recourse. He could have gotten a hundred. So at age 63, you go off to prison for over five years. Is that correct? Correct. What was that like? The, uh, I mean, a life where you're the Hollywood fixer, you're walking through parties, you're shaking hands to suddenly going to a, a federal penitentiary. Well, you know what? Living in the life is something that you think maybe is going to happen to you someday. You hope that it don't, but it will. And I want to tell all the young men who are thinking about getting into a life of crime, okay? It's only a matter of time. They're going to catch you. And if they don't catch you, your friends might be putting you in the trunk of a car dead. So those are about the only choices you have. My recommendation to these young people is get a trade or go to college, live a normal life, be happy. You don't have to look over your head. You got to remember, guys like me, we have to hustle every day. Every day, morning and night. You wake up in that morning, what am I going to do today to make a dollar? You know, and you got to think of some scam, all right, and then go out and do it. And then you're being followed. I mean, I used to be followed, the FBI, uh, LAPD, organized crime. I mean, and I had it down pat. It was like second nature. All the valets in town knew me. I mean, I was set up. I'd have my friend Joe pick me up behind a restaurant. I pull into the valet. I know a couple cars behind me is an agent. I walk in the restaurant, the front door, the back door before they even got in the restaurant. I'm in a car and I'm gone. And I went on doing my business. I've done that several times. There's just several ways 
several ways that I did to evade them. But you're not going to evade them all the time. And I was probably one of the better guys at that job. But it's a hustle, hustle, hustle. And, you know, you've got to be awake 24 hours a day in that life. Who wants to live that kind of life? I did it. You know, when I got indicted, I knew the day would come. I can remember it like yesterday. I was sitting in my chair with my dog, my cigarettes, and my coffee. It was quarter to six in the morning. And on my street, you could hear a pin drop at that hour, quarter to six in the morning. And I heard boom, 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 car doors opening, shutting. And I just sat there and I said, this is it. And a minute later, knock on my door, Spado get to the door. I opened it, I had a cigarette in my hand. One agent knocked a cigarette out of my freaking hand. Turned around, put the cuffs on me. The toughest part of me being indicted was my son lived with me, my son Anthony. And he was sleeping, and he thought I had a TV on too loud, he heard noises. He came out and they put the cuffs on him. That hurt me more than the five years I did. Trust me. And, you know, me going into prison, it was, I believe, very much in mind control. And I just had to flip my mind. That's it. You know what I mean? I got to do my time. I got to fight my case. And I did. I did all that. Uh, in prison, the Italians, like me, were well-respected uh, by the other gangs, uh, the Spanish, the Blacks, and so forth. And uh, I had no problems in prison. But, you know, anybody that does time will tell you one thing about doing time. It's a waste of time. Once again, I want to urge you young people, my book is not all about being a gangster. You read my book, it's learned how to be a businessman, how to be successful in business. That's in the book, and a lot of people miss that, but a lot of people are catching on now about it. So you get, during your time in prison, I mean, you spent your whole life hustling, did you come to terms with the fact that when you get out, you're going to try to find something different? You're going to try to go the straight way? I mean, you know, you had kids, grandkids. I mean, what, what motivated you to go from uh, this life of extremes to becoming an accomplished author and someone that wants to spend a lot of time telling others not to follow the path that you've traveled? Well, getting out of prison... I was just telling this story today to somebody, actually. You know, I expected everybody to be coming to me and have an envelope full of cash. It didn't happen. What happened here in Hollywood was the perception became the reality. Ori, there's a lot of people are going to want to read your book. What's the best way to get hold of you? My publishing company is a Canadian publishing company. Very fine one. And they could be, your, your listeners can go to coastalwest.ca and purchase my book from them. Or they could visit my website, www.theaccidentalgangster.com and purchase an autograph book. And they could purchase an autograph book from my author because I signed a whole bunch. You can go to my website, www 
theaccidentalgangster.com and purchase a book. Ari, it's been a pleasure and I'll, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, going to the Canadian publisher, giving some business to Canada and getting one of your signed books. I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much, my friend. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. Download and subscribe at chatterthatmatters.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.